All right. The question was asked last week about uh, covenantal theology, and, and I spent some time looking at it. And the more I looked at it, the more complicated it became. And our variety is, so I'll just give you the simple overview. And you'll notice uh, on the title, there's a reference to the bottom of the page. If you're interested in knowing more about it, you can contact that book. Uh, it's edited by Larry uh, Pettigrew and uh, the faculty of uh, Shepherd's Theological Seminary uh, participated in this and wrote it. The name of the book is Forsaking Israel, and uh, you can, uh, it's pretty technical actually, but it's uh, worthwhile reading if you're interested in the subject. The subject is basically, uh, the subject is basically forsaking Israel. It's talking about supersessionism, which is uh, what we would call covenant theology and where it comes from and how it developed. This all developed in the 15th, 16th, and 17th century. This comes out of the Reformation period. And uh, he goes into it more detail than you'll hear tonight. I'm just giving you an overview. So I'm, a lot of this comes from that book and what I read and other things that I've read over the years. First of all, the covenant of works is not in the Bible. There's no such thing. Can't be found. But here's how the covenant of works is explained. The covenant of works is explained in this way, that God made a covenant with Adam right after he was created. And the covenant basically says you have to have perfect obedience. And uh, that is how you're going to have eternal life if you are completely obedient to God. Now, Adam blew that, obviously, but still, the covenant of works is still required of him. He can't keep it, but the covenant of works is still provided. So, in order for man to have eternal life, another covenant was made, the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace really requires a third person besides Adam and God, requires another person who keeps perfect obedience, who would keep perfect obedience for mankind, the God-man, and he would keep the law, which is the embodiment, the revelation and the embodiment of the covenant of works. So Jesus was required to keep the law and earn righteousness for those who will be saved. So the idea is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, by faith, you are, uh, your sins are forgiven, but now you are up to zero. Now you need righteousness. And so Christ has merited the righteousness because he kept the law, which is the covenant of works, and he has, there is a treasury of merit that then is put on your account. Now, where is that? Well, I'm going to show you tonight there is no place for that. Okay, so after the fall, number one, Adam and Eve uh, entered into sin, and the covenant of works, looks like I forgot a word or two, the covenant of works continued to exist in the form of law and eventually the Mosaic Law. The covenant of works requires perfect obedience from God, which none of us can do. So the only one that could do it, the only person that could do it, is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The covenant of works promises eternal life to those who keep it. In other words, if Adam and Eve could keep the law perfectly, they'd be saved. If you could keep the law perfectly, you'd be saved. Problem, nobody can do it, except the God-man. The covenant of works threatens eternal punishment to those who do not keep it. The righteousness that the law, 
that is the covenant of works, requires, is fulfilled by Christ. Why? Because he perfectly kept the Mosaic law. Allah, the covenant of works. The righteousness that Christ earned in should be keeping the law, that is the covenant of works, is restored in those who believe by Christ's spirit. Uh, what happens when you're justified? You're justified, what happens? You're declared what? Righteous. Righteous. Uh, I got a question. Uh, in Adam's case, he only had one sin that he could commit. And that was, don't eat the apple. Yeah, but he was, that was a death. That was the whole, the whole thing. I, mean, that's I understand. Yeah. And he disobeyed it. But it was perfect requirement was you keep all the commandments, even though he only had one. He couldn't even keep that. No. So was that the, is that what you're referring to then as the covenant of works? Was the Father's first, the Christ's command to Adam to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? So yeah, that was a test. Okay, so that's the covenant of works. But prior to that, Adam, God made a covenant with Adam. According to them. Okay. God made a covenant with them. You have to keep perfect righteousness okay. in see. order to be saved. So, all right. I was having a hard time connecting. So, so the, 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 the theologians who hold to the covenant of works are supposing that there was something already regulated by God right. toward Adam. Okay, yeah. It's a phantom covenant. So is the covenant of grace. We don't, that was made in eternity past. We don't have any record of that. And I'll show you before we quit that every covenant that we have is stated so as a covenant in the Bible. So they created a straw man? Yeah, they created a straw man. That's in essence what it is. And you're going to see that this actually bleeds into into uh, evangelical Christianity, even in not in in uh, non-covenantal churches. Okay, the truth. Okay, Nate. Question: So the covenant of works was thirteen hundred to fourteen hundred. Yeah, that's when it, it was developed. What's the big personal reason behind it for them to come up with this theology to control people? No, not necessarily. It, it came up because the theologians were, were fighting Catholicism, the reformers, and they were, they were being challenged by the, the, the Catholicism's sacerdotal things. In other words, baptism has something spiritual, communion has something spiritual, and so on and so forth. And it uh, gets really complicated, but it kind of grew out of that fight. Another fight was Wingley wanted a, wanted a city-state, so he developed a, a covenant of works which helped him with infant baptism. So since infant baptism is not in the New Testament anywhere, you have to bring the Old Testament circumcision you have to link it back to there. Now here's what coven here's one of the basic tenets of covenantal hermeneutics. Covenant believe you interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament. We believe the New Testament stands on its own interpretation. And the New Testament is further revelation built upon the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't reinterpret the Old Testament. And see, that's how you get rid of uh, Israel is done. Well, in Swingley, and I, I hit this a little bit very, very briefly in the church history class, Zwingli tried to create his own kingdom right. as well, right. which is essentially what Nate was referring to with the battle between some of the reformers versus the sacramental system and so forth. It was, hey, we can, we can replace Israel 
with our own kingdom, and so out of that develops replacement theory and covenant theory. We call this active obedience of Christ. In other words, so he was uh, under the obedience. I mean, he's God. He could keep it. We don't, we're not denying that. And he kept it. But the point is, I'll tell you why, why uh, the truth of God, Christ's law keeping in the next session. Augustine, uh, he was in about 300s, sure. somewhere in there. Uh, I read an article on that, and he said that one of the problems was beings Christ had not come, and they were all looking for him, that the rapture would have come. Evidently, we made a mistake as far as interpretation is concerned. And therefore, the deal on dispensationalism was changed. Well, you know, Augustine... Hold, hold a covenant uh, that... Augustine originally was a dispensationalist. Augustine changed to an amillennialist. And the church became, the church replaced Israel, so that's why you have a whole system develop, developing. And uh, re, when you read church history and when you go back there, you have uh, churches joined with a state. In other words, they were actually a state, the state church. And if you didn't belong to the state church, uh, there was trouble. So you had troubles with popes and kings, who's going to rule my country and who's has the final authority. Confusion over, uh, confusion over uh, what's a kingdom, you know what I mean? Okay, the next section. Why did Christ keep the law? What was the purpose of it? It qualified him to be the sin bearer. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. I guess I got all the scripture there, so somebody read it. You don't have to look it up. But you can if you want. should be underlined in your Bible anyway. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness of who? Not Christ. God. Both share the same righteousness. Okay, it enabled Christ to fulfill the old covenant. Look at Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He fulfilled. He didn't negate the law. He fulfilled the law. You and I are not under the law. But if you're a covenantalist, the tendency is to put you back under the law, the covenant of works. Uh, my uh, mother-in-law grew up in a Presbyterian church, and they were very strict on Sundays as a Sabbath because they were put themselves as a covenantal church, Presbyterian church, which was a more conservative group, put themselves under back under the law. True of uh, some of us who grew up as Mennonites, uh, this was also the same situation because basically the Mennonites were not dispensational. There were churches that were because, he, because the Mennonite group, uh, each church is, is uh, autonomous, has its own laws, even though it may belong to a fellowship or a district or whatever. Denomination. Yeah, denomination. Okay, thirdly, it enabled Christ to open the new covenant. I didn't think we read that, did we? Look at uh, Acts 2, 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you will see and hear. Okay. The new covenant promised what? The Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 32, and Ezekiel 36. And when Jesus was glorified, went back to heaven, 
then that opened up the way for the new covenant to be fulfilled. So, every one of you who are born again here tonight have the Holy Spirit living within. That was not true of the Old Testament. Is the Jeremiah verse the thirty one thirty two is that, that I'll, I'll write on their hearts? That's it. That's a new covenant. Yeah. All right. Even though the new covenant in Jeremiah was made strictly to Israel, how do we get in? Correct. Yeah. We're more than that, actually, as individual believers. We are actually united to Jesus Christ. When you placed your faith and trust in Christ, you became one with Christ. I've illustrated like, how did Ruth get in? She was a Moabitess, and Moabites couldn't go on the temple grounds until the 10th generation. How did she get in? What's the answer? Marriage. She married Boaz. And she becomes the line of Christ. She becomes the grandmother of uh, David, great grandmother. Okay, qualified to be the Son of God. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness of Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah. The resurrection proved him to be the Son of God. Verified that. Qualified to be our high priest. And that is Hebrews 2.17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, he lived a perfect life. Why? So that he could be our high priest. You have a representative in heaven, and I have a representative in heaven, a man at the right hand of God, a human being, that you can go to and you say, I'm facing this problem. And Jesus, what? He was tempted all points like a you are. He's not a stranger to your problem. Yes. Just just straight like to your point here, that yeah, the main major theme or one of the two major themes of the book of Hebrews was for the, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, to um, be reminded of the new covenant replacing the old covenant. Right. <laughs> See, one of the things they liked about Judaism was that the high priests were human. The high priest represented God. So, uh, Paul, or whoever wrote it, I'm not sure it's Paul, honestly, but it might be. I'm not, I'm not going to argue the point. The point, of course, is that the writer of the Hebrews said, it's been replaced, but you have a higher high priest. You have a high, when, when it came time for the atonement, Aaron had to go in and offer sacrifice for his own sins before he could come back out and take the blood in for the nation. But Jesus Christ entered once forever for all. And he's our high priest. So you, can, so you can't say like Job, I wish God were like me. I, I would have a mediator between God and me. Job chapter 9. That's been answered. There's not a problem. You and I can't go to God, the Son, and, and He understands. So these are the reasons why He keeps the law. Not to earn a treasury of merit to give us. That we get by justification. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're made one with Christ and God declared you just. He treated you as righteous. He declared you righteous. And then he treats you as righteous. 
That doesn't mean you're always righteous, but you are before God in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, salvation is based on one act of obedience, not many acts. But Paul nowhere expresses that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer. Have you heard that? Where? Where do you find that? Not in the Bible. No, it's not in the Bible. Say that all. Say it all the time. It comes from the covenant of works. Because of Christ and Adam's representative roles, imputed righteousness remains a legitimate of expressing the forensic nature of justification. To really put it down, you're justified. You're declared righteous on the basis of the, on Christ's death. The Apostle Paul proclaims that a sinner is declared righteous on the basis of one act of Christ. Not two. Look at Romans 5, 18 and 19. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Okay, through... Uh... The point is, how many transgressions caused us to all be sinners? One. Well, how many acts did it take for us to become righteous? One. Obedience in Romans 5.19 does not refer to law-keeping. For Adam's one act of disobedience was his repudiation of Christ's one act of obedience. And his one act of obedience was his willingness to go to the cross and die for our sins. And when do we see that being played out in the Gospels? <coughs> the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will. I got a question on, on uh, Romans 4 3 then. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness? Now the word counted can be used to impute. It, and or reckon. Or reckon. I mean, it has three different, different connotations. <coughs> I don't know if I can pronounce that word. The Greek word on that expression. Well, Gizomai. means can be in record, can be imputed. Pute is to put on one's account. Right. Verse 8 there says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute. So. What was imputed to him? Christ's righteousness or what? In verse 4 3 of Romans. He believed God. And what happened? It was God again for him. Yeah, he was declared righteous. Huh? His, it was by means of faith. Faith and faith doesn't, faith itself doesn't make you righteous. It's the object of faith. Faith is the vehicle. Faith is the, the conveyance to where you're made right. It's not faith and faith. Faith is the means by which God declares you righteous. Now you've got to remember, faith is just not a nod to God. Faith is really a commitment. And uh, Augustus Strong, in his theology, puts it in probably the best way I've been able to do it, is that you're on a little island in the middle of a river that's swelling. It's getting bit larger and larger, and it's obvious this island's going to go underneath the water eventually. And there's a rowboat over there. So he has knowledge that there's a rowboat. That's faith, has to have knowledge. The second thing he does, he has to reckon that that rowboat will be able to save him. 
Now knowing there's a rowboat there and knowing that it's capable of saving him won't, do, won't save him until what? He gets in the boat. He has to make a commitment to the boat. Just knowing Jesus Christ is not salvation. Knowing that Jesus Christ saves is not salvation. It's not till you appropriate Jesus Christ and what he's done to you by faith, believing it. That's why faith has to have an object. Right. Go ahead, Andrew. I think that's Hebrews 11, 6. It says, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earn Hebrews 11, 6. Is that what you read? Yeah. Hebrews 11.1 1 sort of gives you the de definition of it. Now, Christ's obedient is his one act of righteousness, the passive obedience followed by the resurrection that leads to justification and life. I've got several verses here. Romans 5.19. Philippians 2, 8, Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, and Hebrews 10, 8, and 10. So let's start with 5, 19. Whereas through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. Right, there's a comparison. One sin, bang, we're out of the garden. I think if you go to the Creation Museum, ever, there's one, there's one picture in the museum itself, it's worth a thousand words. It's where Adam and Eve are being kicked out of the garden. Shows them leaving. Yes? Question, so on, on some of these, these Romans passages, especially Romans 5, 19, 5, 18 and 19, is the will be made, it's future tense or is this like aortic tense? This has happened, it is happening and will happen. Where I get a little confused on some of these is, um, like you've been explaining, at salvation, we were declared righteous. We, we are not experientially, but, but, through, but through position. One positionally. And so, is this assuming the believer is a believer at this time? I, I'm trying to remember the context. Well, I would say at this time, the one who will believe is the one who eventually does believe. Gotcha. I didn't look it up, but I, the way it's translated here, I would be almost confident future tense. You're not saved till you believe, even if you're called. No such thing. All right. Philippians 2.8. Being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedient to what? Death on the cross. Romans chapter 5.19, obedience. How about Hebrews 5, 8 and 9? Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey the source of eternal salvation. Yeah, he was obedient. His life was obedient. Hebrews 10, 8 to 10. Should be 9 to 10, actually. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One obedience. Now, just a brief look at the covenants of the Old Testament on page three. Okay, we have a Noah covenant. Look at Genesis 9, 13 to 15. 13 to 15, Genesis. 
God, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Okay, you, it's a covenant, right? It says so. All covenants in the Bible are called covenants in the Word. And this is an unconditional covenant that God has made with all the creatures of the earth. I'll never again destroy the world by water. How will he destroy the world? Fire. And even, I think, some people in Los Angeles this last week thought they were in Noah's flood, but not quite. How about the Abrahamic covenant, and how about Genesis 15? That should be verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay. So that's another unconditional covenant. God made it with man. Man has nothing to do to fulfill it. God will fulfill it. So who owns the land over there? Whose land is it? over there where Israel is fighting over. Israel's. Yeah, look how little they have now. Yeah, they have they just a... Yeah, it should be clear to the Euphrates River down to the river uh, down to the river in Egypt. Actually, from Mediterranean and further east in the Jordan River. This is only one case in Genesis where it's called a covenant. So when the Palestinians supporters in New York are chanting from the river to the sea, which river is it? Jordan. From the Jordan to the... Okay. There's parts of Israel that are very narrow. So when uh, Israelis are really war-weary, when I... The last time I've been there, I've been there about four times, but the, they're war-weary. Uh, they have to sit in their jets because they don't have much warning when a rocket comes. And uh, they have, as we've said, if you're 18, you're automatically in the military until you, for four years, for three years, and then you're on reserves till you're 55. So till you're 55 years old, you got to go two weeks every summer or whenever to, and play war games. The women are drafted too for two years and they're in until about their 30. If they have a child, they get out of it. So everybody in Israel basically can take a machine gun, take it apart, clean it, and load it. Men and women. So if they got in street war, where you're going down the street, street by street by street, that's going to be one bloody war. And we're finding out you can't win a war by air only unless you drop an atom bomb and blow everybody's smithereens. You still got to go building by building by building by building. We can't get rid of ground troops as much as we'd like to. So the final war will be fought on horses. Because you can, very little, you can take a little piece of a 50 cent piece and keep a $26 million jet on the ground. You know if you drove, drive a combine, sometimes what breaks you down is just a two-bit piece. Or a car. I know my dad bought a brand new Buick and, and in Hutchinson and he got out of town and the transmission was out, brand new. So they brought it back into the, I mean he just drove it out. Brought it back into it and, there, and they looked at it and there was a little plastic piece in the transmission that, that went out. Cost him, that, 
it costs like less than ten dollars. So you could take a big machine and, and knock it out pretty quick. It's all electronic. You just do something with the your computer. And it's yeah. Good old days of points and plugs. Spark plugs, clean the, clean the points in his distributor and go. Okay, the Palestinian covenant. Look at Exodus chapter 19, five to six. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Okay, and the covenants that we've mentioned so far, this is the only covenant that has an if in it. Makes it conditional. If you're disobedient, what happens? You get off the land. They were disobedient, and they spent captivity in the Old Testament in, in what country? Babylon. This covenant's history, like it's... It's what? It's... They didn't obey, obviously. Right, so they, they didn't, didn't obey. obey. So they didn't obey when they killed Christ. So they were sent in dispersion in 70 AD all over the world. And not until 1948 did they get back in the nation. And they're not all back in the nation yet. They will be back there eventually. Is the Palestinian then related to the Mosaic? Yeah, it can be called Mosaic Palestinian, yeah. All right, Davidic Covenant, Psalm 89, 3 to 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. <clears throat> so who's the king in the line next to be in Israel? Who's the next king? Christ. Christ. You haven't had a king since Jehoiachin. I wanted to make Zerubbabel, but Zerubbabel wouldn't, uh, no, that's not, not for me. How about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, and to 33? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, that's a new covenant. But again, my point of these covenants is that everyone is stated as a covenant. Whereas the covenant of works, can't find it. Covenant of grace, can't find it. Covenant of redemption, you can't find it. So stick with what the word says. How do these, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, how do those creep in churches, like evangelical churches that don't claim to be covenantal but tend to teach it? How does that get in, or what are ways that's taught? It's based on it's based on the fact that you have a theological system and you're imposing it on the scripture rather than letting the scripture speak for itself. We believe in a grammatical, historical, and I add contextual interpretation of the Bible. You, you draw your theology from the Bible, not from a system that theologians have put together in the past or are putting together in the present. 
So what you see maybe is more my question, our tendencies to go back to the law. Yeah. Our tendency is to want to work for something. It's hard for us to accept grace. You go to somebody and they're having trouble. You say, I'd like to help. Well, I'm independent and I can do it myself. Ever heard that? It's better to give than to receive. But we all have to learn to receive. I learned that real quick in the ministry. Uh, there was a guy by the name of Frosty in our church, an older gentleman, and, and Frosty was his nickname, and he was Frosty. It was his personality. And he lived in a trailer house behind his son and uh, his family. So I'd go there and I'd visit with him, and uh, every time I did, he take me out and he would uh, take my car and he had a 300 gallon can, uh, tank of gas and he'd fill my car full of gas every time. So I told him, Frosty, I'm not coming here to get gas. I'm coming here just to visit you. You don't have to give me gas. And he said, I want to tell you something, young man. If I didn't want to give you gas, I wouldn't give you gas. <laughs> You better learn to say thank you and appreciate the gift. <laughs> right? You say thank you when you get a gift. You don't have to explain. You don't have to explain, go all around Robin Hood, why you don't need the gift. You wouldn't give her your gift if they didn't want to give you a gift. How many of us get gifts? And then we want to be apologetic that we got the gift. Why don't we just say what? Thank you. Show appreciation. And that's what salvation is. Is it not a gift? It's a gift of what? Grace. Which means you haven't earned it and you haven't deserved it. Yes, uh, Leroy. Is that where uh, people have a uh, problem with uh, this eternal security? Sure. You know, that you need to keep working and working. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So you then lose your salvation and then... So what do you work them out for? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've heard people say, we should be like the Jehovah Witnesses who go door by door and do all that. We should have that kind of enthusiasm. I'm not denying that Christian people need a, a spiritual spizzerinctum now and then. But the Jehovah Witnesses are so active, why? They have to work. They don't look very enthusiastic either when they come to your door. <laughs> spizzerinctum means energy. It's an Irish term. I invented it. <laughs> but the point is, the point is we're all geared to work because we're all proudful and believe we can. We can. Yeah, that's where uh, people have eternal security problems. Then how many sins do you have to commit before you lose? And how much work do you have to do before you get it? That's all settled in justification. It's all settled. Yes, Anne. And in addition to what you're saying about um, we're all prideful, who's going to get the glory? And that's where it ends up. The man wants the glory, and that's how the works gets into mm -hmm. it. He wants to be able to point to himself and pride and say, I did so, such and such. Yeah, nobody's going to be in heaven and say, I'm here because of, I'm here because of the grace of God. That's, once you get a hold of that truth, it's very humbling, quite frankly. And see, people then tell me when I 
when we get into these eternal, eternal security subjects, well, you're saying that you can do anything and keep your salvation. Have you heard that? You probably heard. I heard that quite a bit. And uh, no, once you really know grace, you want to serve because of grace. If he's been that kind to me, and that gracious to me, and given me all these things, why would I not want to serve? Plus, we have a new nature that wants to serve him. Plus, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to want to serve him. And if we want to do the same thing, then that means we didn't, didn't turn around. Forgiveness is seeking forgiveness. Is right. Turning around. Why did you get saved in the first place? Yeah. We did. We read it in the passages earlier that um, in Romans 3, 4, and 5, um, if, if Paul hits that, if grace abounds that much more, shall we continue in our sin? And of course, it's emphatic. Right. His response is, may it never be. Like, don't even let it enter into your mind. Yes, you're forgiven, but your new nature wants to Romans 5, 20. Where sin abounded, went through that Tuesday morning, where sin abounded, what? Grace, grace much more abounded. I always think of that. Uh, I shared that with the guys Tuesday, so excuse me for repeating it. But I had a friend who uh, picked up a drunk in Salina, and he'd had quite a ministry with servicemen in Salina. The two air base, there was an air base and a uh, training ground there, and he and his wife opened their house to feed them every Friday night. They'd share testimonies. Picked up the drunk, and the drunk took him to his house, sobered him up. And the drunk said, I, I committed a sin, a terrible sin. Do you think God can forgive me? And Pete lit a match. He said, do you think there's enough water in the Pacific Ocean to put out this match? He said, yeah, well, that's grace. You can't commit a sin where grace can't cover it. You say, well, I've never committed murder. Well, you probably hated somebody along the line, so you are a murderer. God forgive any sin, right? Except the one sin of rejecting him. Well, we got four minutes to get into John. Uh, um, I don't feel like it. Yes. Just briefly, covenant, dispensation, just so that we understand totally what, what the division is, not, not a detailed thing. But you said a guy was dispensationalist, but then he changed and, and went covenant. How would that show up in his life? How would it show up in his life? Well, it would show up in his life, number one, He's taken away the uh, imminent return of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Well, he's coming back, but, but it's not like an imminent return, like we believe. The rapture and the second coming become the same event. Yeah, and, and furthermore, when you, when you say covenantal theology. You've got to remember there's every shade under the sun in it. Uh, some of the stuff I said belongs to covenant theologians. Some covenant theologians wouldn't agree with that. Some would take it further. But the tendency in covenantal theology is this. What you have done is you have taken things and scripture doesn't mean scripture. Here's where the danger is. How many generations of hearing this does it take for you to not believe any of scripture? If you're saying scripture says this when it doesn't <coughs> say that and you're proclaiming that, what is the next generation? That's the danger of this. I'm not saying they're not Christians. A lot of them are. R.C. Sproul was a 
covenantal theologian. And others. And, and they're defending uh, things, but the next generation, if, they're, if this isn't true, how do, who decides now what is true? Who makes that decision? The denomination. Yeah, or the preacher that's in the church. He knows Greek. He knows Hebrew. I don't know Greek, and I don't know Hebrew, and he's got the big words. How do I know? He, he's smarter than me, and he's talking about a covenant of works. Made it with Adam. Well, I, I read the book there, but he says it. So, it, it undermines the authority of Scripture. It's one way. Subtle. But in a couple generations, they're gone. Where are the Methodists? Well, like Rick Warren, is that what he believes too now? It's weird. <laughs> I don't know what he believes. I don't agree with him, whatever he believes. Uh, I'm not sure what Rick Warren believes, but... Time's up. <laughs> it is a little, a little interesting that as they have left the authority of the Bible, they say, well, the Bible isn't God's word. And I say, well, how do you establish doctrine? Well, we know what Jesus said. Well, how do you know what Jesus said? Yeah, exactly. It's in the Bible. Yeah. You just keep asking questions. Yeah. How do you, if this isn't, if this is apply to us, how does this apply to us? You got to do it in context. I recognize there are passages of scripture that were written technically just to Israel. Well, we know the whole New Testament wasn't written to Israel because Israel, you know, has been dispersed. And they have a supernatural blindness on them by God. Only a remnant are saved every generation until God, at the right time, will lift the blindness. Yes? Two, two, two things. One, I think... The study we did as elders was help, the most helpful for me by far on Vlock's book. I thought that book really did a good job. It, it was super technical and it goes through how many shades of, of covenant theory and I get that. But that was really, really helpful. Plain language to, if, if there's more confusion on it, I think he does a, an amazing job of identifying error and heresy versus you know, truth and so forth, and explains it. But then the second part, uh, super fast, is I think this boils down for me, again, how, do, how am I studying the Word? Am I first reading Scripture and allowing Scripture to, to interpret Scripture, or do I jump to a commentary, and do I jump to a certain, you know, where do I go first? And the treasure, I believe, is in that, is in one who takes his time and will read it and go to the parallel passages and multiple times and then go to uh, uh, others. Larry uh, Pettigrew uh, taught at Shepherd Seminary where Michael Block is and okay. several guys are. And uh, Larry Pettigrew makes a statement in, uh, in another book and here's what he says. There are no true dispensational theologians who are liberal. Because their theology is based on a historical, grammatical, contextual interpretation of Scripture. But once you leave the moorings of Scripture, it's like pulling the anchor. Your boat starts to drift away from you. Peter Goldman, the guy coming here, yeah. he described dispensationalism as a self-correcting system. Mm -hmm. Because of what you said, it's contextual. Yeah, he teaches at this seminary. So he's coming, uh, man up conference, and then he'll preach Sunday. We're going to have him preach Sunday morning, Sunday school, and then also uh, during the 
worship service. Yes. Well, one more point. I'm sorry. I, I love this stuff. But I'm super encouraged, and the scripture just came to mind when some of these topics become technical and difficult and complex. And I go back to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. I'm sorry, 28. And he just says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. It goes on, and that's encouraging to me. I don't know all this stuff, but God I don't either. I do know this, that the Bible was written not to theologians, but to ordinary Joes. And as Spurgeon said over a hundred years ago, God really loves the ordinary Joe because he made a lot of them. <laughs> David said, I know more than the ancients because mm -hmm. I know God. Mm -hmm. That's more than all those other You people. here who know the Bible <laughs> have more wisdom than some of the smartest people in our universe. The wisdom of the world in that same context of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. The sub-wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. Yes, Andrew. I was wondering what that 1 John 3 passage was. Oh, yeah. First <laughs> John's in the Bible, isn't it? 1 John 3. See how great the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see him just as he is. The next verse. And everyone who has this hope on him, what? Purifies himself. When you really have a picture of Jesus, it's self-cleansing. Remove yourself away from that a little bit and the hope of his coming and you being like him. You know? What if I got up every day and said, this may be the day that Jesus comes. It would be purified. I'd sit with a stranger. This is the last time I'm going to see him. Maybe I need to share the gospel with him or give him some hint. Or maybe I wouldn't get as upset as I'm getting upset because something happened. If tomorrow you're going to be in heaven, why would you get upset about it? Just commit it to the Lord. The next day when it comes, uh, God will take care of it. We could all learn that lesson. I mean, that's a lifetime lesson. I'm up in years and, hey, wait, I still struggle with this. You lay it in the Lord's hands, and the next thing you know, you want to grab it back. Well, I've, uh, I've kept you five minutes over time. Uh, quite frankly, you want to know the truth, I love these kind of discussions. I like to teach this way. So don't be afraid to ask questions, sir. And quite frankly, I'm not concerned if we get off the subject either because I think we ought to answer where your, where your questions are. That's why we're in church, to learn about God. We don't have just one prescribed little lesson we got to get through because it's prescribed. We, we need to teach, so we teach. You know, I do that on Sunday morning preaching, but 
far as I'm concerned, in Bob's studies on this, we ought to find out where your heart is, where your questions are. And if I don't know, and I don't know all things either, uh, I'm willing to go back and do some research and try to help you out a little bit, and me as well. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your great salvation. We're not worthy, Lord. We never were. And as it says in the Psalms, you picked us up out of the clay, out of the miry clay, and set our feet on a rock. And that rock is Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you that uh, you did it for us. May we be gracious and give you the glory in our lives and share this wonderful faith with those we meet. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.